0: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. And today, I'm thrilled to have Frank Jacob on the show. Frank is Professor of Global History at Nord University in Norway, and he's the author of several books and many articles. And today, we're going to focus on one of his recent books. Its title is Japanese War Crimes During World War II, Atrocity and the Psychology of Collective Violence. And in the book, Frank examines the conduct of Japanese soldiers during World War II and tries to untangle the complicated strands of individual, collective, and social influences that led so many soldiers to participate in mass violence. It's a really interesting book, um, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it with him. So with that, Frank, welcome, and thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies.
1: Hi, thanks a lot for having me on the show, and I'm thrilled to talk with you about that book.
0: So I always ask at the beginning for authors to say a little bit about themselves by way of introduction. So so Frank, maybe you can just say, how did you come to be a historian? Uh, How did you come to be somebody who's really interested in Japan uh, and and, and in mass violence and and whatever you want to say by way of introduction?
1: Yeah, I was born in 1984 in Germany, which means in the mid-90s, I was at an age where I got very attracted to... Japanese manga and Japanese anime. And then I was always interested in history as well. So when the time came to decide what to study and what to make out of my life, I, a little bit short-sighted, just said, oh, I want to study history and uh, Japanese studies. And everybody around me asked, and what are you going to make out of that? I said, I don't know yet, but it's interesting. (laughs) I'm young. I think I can take the risk. So I started to study at uh, Wurzburg University in Germany. That's in Northern Bavaria. And I studied history as a major and Japanese studies as a minor. And, uh, due to the Japanese studies education, I learned Japanese and we had a lot of courses on Japanese popular culture manga, anime, theater, film, uh, very broad education. And uh, I also continued to study history, uh, which I was interested before joining the university. But um, eventually those two fields combined in a way when I uh, started to think about PhD. And unfortunately, Japanese history is nothing very common at German universities. So I switched to Japanese studies instead of history uh, for writing the PhD, but with a historical topic. So generally, uh, coming from a more historical orientation, I switched to a more Japan-focused orientation, but finished a PhD on Secret societies, uh, right-wing secret societies like the Thule Society in Munich and the um, mistranslated Black Dragon Society. So it's the Amur Society. The Amur is a river in northeastern uh, China. And um, this Amur Society showed a lot of similarities with uh, the German right-wing society I was looking at. So I wrote a comparative analysis as a PhD and after my phd i was not very lucky in finding a position immediately so i went to the private sector and worked in an it and marketing company for a few years in the netherlands before then getting a chance at uh, university level again and i became the scientific assistant to professor at Wurzburg university Uh, after that I was lucky again and got a tenure track position in the United States at CUNY. And in 2018, I was then lucky for the third time and got a full professorship tenured at uh, North University where I now teach um, a lot of global history, network history, and uh, for example, the Cold War uh, in Asia to name just a few examples, and can do a lot of research, which uh, very often goes into other directions as well. So my recent monograph is on Emma Goldman's perception of the Russian Revolution, but I also continue to work on topics uh, related to Japanese popular culture or Japanese history in particular.
0: Yeah, I was really struck by the variety of topics Um That you've written on and I wonder how you how you maybe I should phrase this this way I know a number of graduate students are listening to this Um, what kind of advantages does that kind of breadth bring to your analysis of any specific topic
1: it's in a way very helpful because you read in fields that are not on the first look relevant for Uh, the other field you're working on or in but you will gain a lot of insight new perspectives uh, new theoretical approaches and uh, that makes it very vivid in a sense that you always learn something new from a different field and uh, for me personally it was always interesting to also look at the sources that are available close by so My interest for transatlantic anarchism, for example, was uh, sparked by uh, the possibility to use the New York archives while I was there. And uh, sometimes you just go to an archive uh, catalog, you look what could be interesting, or you have a side note in a work you're reading, and then you think, oh, I should check if there's something available about that because it seems to be interesting. So very often it's uh, just like, uh, a little sparkling in the air and then you you get into topics that you never thought you would deal with um the breath of course is also from a job perspective good as you can show that you can serve in multiple disciplinary areas and that you are uh, enough all-rounder particularly for departments who are not that strong and have not that many people um, it will always be an argument to say we are looking for somebody who can teach uh, multiple areas and who has an expertise in multiple areas. So That's definitely an advantage.
0: Well, let's turn to this book, and maybe we'll start by... Uh, I'll start just by asking you, why did, why did you decide to write this book?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about uh, violence and... Uh, how it is described uh, very often in books. And then I read particularly late Iris Chang's book, which is uh, out of the question a very important book, but it is also very uh, anti-Japanese, almost Japan bashing. And I was not uh, agreeing with the explanation. So the explanation she gave for the eruption of violence was all the Japanese are responsible for that. Uh, which is in a way true, but that's not the whole story. So they were not violent just because they are Japanese. They were violent for multiple different reasons, as it turned out. So the idea was to write an introduction in that would provide a survey of different forms of violence used by Japanese perpetrators against different victim groups, American uh, prisoners of war, Korean uh, sex slaves, uh, euphemistically called comfort women or yanfu, and um, also against um, civilians. So the idea was there must be a reason for this violence that exists beyond uh, the perpetrators being Japanese. And uh, this was the main question I had. Why did they do that? Uh, How could it happen? That's probably one of the questions that drives a lot of uh, genocide scholars. I think we will never find the ultimate answer, but we can at least identify some factors that stimulate uh, such violent eruptions and that are responsible for some forms of human action. What uh, I can say with regard uh, to the approach, it will not answer all the questions, but it will at least intensify the awareness that all of us can be violent in a specific situation and that we are not, uh, in a way, morally better uh, just because we claim we are nonviolent people. Mm. Interesting.
0: So, so yeah, So, so... That sounds. It seems reasonable to say that's probably the the broad thesis of the book. Do you want to say anything before we kind of get into the details, more specific about the the nature of the argument on a on at a thirty thousand foot level?
1: Yeah, Um, the argument is technically very simple. It says that a specific situation A causes. the person or the later perpetrator to find him or herself in a situation or in an environment where violence becomes more accepted than in a peacetime environment. This might be created by specific um, factors that exist in the environment of the war zone that might be propaganda that, uh, in a way, refocuses legal aspects or reshapes legal aspects. And therefore, the perpetrator is as much a product of the specific space-time continuum he or she is in, then it is not enough to just say, oh, a soldier will be violent. Uh, The question is more when will soldiers be particularly violent? So there is an overall approach to that to better understand that uh, not every soldier is automatically a perpetrator and not every perpetrator is automatically a soldier. So that the identity of the perpetrator is something that is created by the specific time context and the specific space context somebody is in. Of course, killing is something that is accepted in war up to a specific level because the intention of the war is to kill the enemy. In the best case, to take him uh, prisoner. But uh, before that, there is usually a battle, and that is something that is the rule uh, for every war we look at. And the idea behind the approach is also to identify something that causes stress for the soldier in a specific space-time continuum and this stress then comes out as a result in a form of extreme violence. So if we know what the triggers are, we can at the one hand prepare soldiers better for war experiences, we can also better deal with the psychological wounds they have to deal with after a war experience, and we can try to limit violent eruptions in armed conflicts for the future. Although it will never be possible, at least I assume that or think that, believe it, that we will have uh, wars that only see violence amongst armed troops or armed professionals because wars are not fought in a classical way where two armies meet And then the violence is over for a time. Um, Since the war transformed themselves in the past two centuries, I would say uh, this situation becomes more and more problematic. How do we uh, protect civilians, non-combatants, etc., from uh, violence that is the consequence of such an eruption? So it's going beyond the Japanese perspective, uh, but it uses the Japanese perspective as a case study. And uh, the idea was also to provide a survey of the different kinds of war crimes that had been committed by Japanese soldiers during the Second World War.
0: Yeah, and, and you and I were chatting earlier, and I, I said, I think a number of the, the case studies you used Many people who are listening to this podcast probably, if you said them, they would kind of have a vague sense of what they were, mm-hmm. but you've actually chosen a topic that that a lot of people lack detailed knowledge on. So so I'd like to go at least through two or three. We don't have time to go through all of them, um, and, and and if you're listening, you should go read the book and, and, and see what Frank has to say about the rest, but... But you, you mentioned Iris Chang, so, so maybe we should start with The Rape of Nanking. So if any if people have read a book about it, it's probably hers, uh, or at least non-academics. Um, so what do we now know about The Rape of Nanking?
1: We know that the Japanese army entered Nanking after um, a battle series that started earlier, Um, when the Japanese troops began with the invasion of the Chinese mainland. But um, the final battle of annihilation the Japanese army had hoped for did not take place because most of the population, or let's say those who could afford, as well as many Chinese soldiers, had retreated from Nanking already. So we have an army that is frustrated because the invasion of China takes much more time than it was assumed before. There were heavy battles uh, in some other parts of China on the way to Nanjing or Nanking, You can use both um, pronunciations. And we have some kind of army that is looking for an enemy that obviously does not exist. Uh, At the same time, there is a high potential of anger for uh, the missing of that opportunity that would have ended the war against China, so the propaganda as well. Um, And in this situation, the Japanese soldiers uh, need some kind of, you know, I, I don't want to say ventile, but uh, it is uh, a way to get rid of the violent potential. At the same time, they also do not have a clear command structure that uh, prevents them from doing that. And then we have a specific space-time continuum that it redetermines the rules for the use of violence. And that uninterruptedly for a long time. And this violence has multiple forms. So we have individual violence of individual or small groups of soldiers that go out, that rape a lot of Chinese women from young age to old age, uh, which is an act that is not only sexual violence, but also a form of control over um, the bodies of the victims or the bodies of the enemies. Then there is uh, fear that the Chinese soldiers only got rid of their um, uniforms are still there, trying to stab the back into uh, trying to stab the Japanese soldier in the back when they are not looking. So there is also some kind of uh, hysteria fear. Uh, The unknown, where are the soldiers? There were so many stories about Chinese guerrilla warfare before. So it's a mix of multiple uh, factors that eventually allow the violence to erupt. So we have a lack of command. We have a distance to Japan where people would be also socially, uh, I'm not using suppressed, but socially put into a more different role. We have... um, A gender aspect, so we have a lot of young men that are participating in war, experiencing violence and have an image of Chinese people that is, uh, as a consequence of propaganda, something of they are less valuable human beings or they are not even human beings. So very often violence becomes torture People are inflamed alive, they are shot, they are kicked, they are cut into pieces. Uh, There are multiple forms of violence in that environment. And uh, in the end, it leaves one of the major scars within the relations between Japan and China. Because Japan... uh, traditionally doesn't want to talk about bad things of the past, because they are in the past. But China expects an um, official acceptance of the events as a, something that should be remembered, that should be uh, brought to a public audience. So we have uh, an implication of that event until today. And then there is this discussion we do not know how, exactly how many people died, but that is not of relevance. There are a lot of people who were tortured, who were raped, who were mistreated, who were killed. And it doesn't play a role if it were five thousand, five hundred thousand or five million. It was a war crime that came into existence as a consequence of the fact that, for example, there was no clear intervention by the Japanese military leadership that could have intervened there. And uh, considering the shape of the Japanese army, an intervention would have been uh, an important thing that probably might have made a difference. On the other hand, there were not too many um, attempts by the Japanese leadership to protect possible victims Um, There were the uh, international zones in Nanjing where people had gathered to be uh, protected in a way, but not even that protected them. They were in colleges, sometimes trying to be separated from the war zone, but the soldiers intruded. Uh, It was almost like a looting that was allowed for everybody who was in that city, because that city was out of the ordinary space. It was un organized in a sense. There there was no clear surveillance of the soldiers and therefore eventually the soldiers had to reframe their environment for themselves. And considering that they had very violent experiences before, it became also a test ground for further violence. And there are multiple reasons for that violence. Aggression, uh, sometimes even depression. So the Chinese army got away and now I punish the Chinese that are left here. And uh, there there are multiple aspects that psychologically play into that. But uh, if you take the same group of uh, soldiers that had uh, rotted for individual acts of violence and put them in a peaceful Japanese environment, like after the war, they became the ordinary man again. Uh, Christopher Browning wrote an important book about ordinary men that turn into um, perpetrators, Uh, but he focused on um, the German police force during the Second World War. And we have similar um, causes here. Um, They are also part of a group, and this group acts dynamically. So if they see that their group peers act violently, it becomes something normal, something that is approved by the group as such. And therefore, it's not a crime anymore. It's just punishment for those who had lost the battle and that in this case were the poor people, women and old people. And they were the victim group that was available, I want to say. It played probably a role that they were Chinese from a Japanese perspective, because that's the enemy, of course. It might have played uh, socially a role that they were women. So somebody um, traditionally considered inferior to men. That's also the upbringing. What kind of respect do I have for a specific um, identity group? And the possibility. It was possible to be violent without being punished. For somebody who's punished in the Japanese army system, that would mean it's payback day. Now I can punish somebody who's beneath me. So we we have multiple aspects that play a role here. Um, the lack of morality, I wouldn't even use that. Uh, they might have had a morality setting, but this setting was not made for Nanjing. It was made for their home at Japan. And therefore, we have a different space-time continuum. And there, everything seems possible. There's no restriction, there's no order, there's no punishment, so they can act as much violent as they want to. And the measures the Japanese army is taking after the events of Nanjing shows that the Japanese army at that point realizes that they have to intervene as well to avoid similar violent eruptions in the future. The answer uh, of the Japanese military leadership is as cruel as Nanjing because they now organize uh, forced prostitution, uh, military sex slavery to make sure that the soldiers function during the front or when they are at the front and can live their violent... uh, yeah, their, their violent fantasies, their sexual energy, they can outlive that in the comfort women station. So they try to really separate between military action and violent fantasies or sexually violent fantasies at the same time, which is a cruel answer, without any doubt. But it also shows that it was understood that this specific unorderly setting was stimulating an eruption of violence?
0: Yeah, I want to. I want. I want to come back to this question of Japanese responses after the war, which is a really interesting one. But you led right into my next question, and and I was really. That's one of the things that I found fascinating about this book is the way in which Japanese uh, commanders and the, the, the military structure decides that they had to provide a more structured and orderly outlet for. Um, uh, for the Japanese soldiers. So, so before we quite get to that, you do show how there is a tradition of brothels in the Japanese military before that. And it seemed to me some of that institutional structure is going to carry forward or be changed in important ways. So, so what, what do we know about the, um, the way in which the Japanese army provided sex to its soldiers before Nanjing? Um,
1: The problem of sex for the army was something that really intensified during the First World War when there were a lot of studies about uh, venereal disease as a consequence of uncontrolled sex with uh, civilians uh, behind the front lines. And uh, the armies re- or the army commands realized that that actually is quite problematic for the military. I mean that uh, uh, yeah, prostitutes were always close to the army is not very surprising, but uh, the institutionalization is something that is uh, quite interesting here. Um, the first. Navy brothels are documented, I think, for the early 30s, 1932. So um, one realized if the soldiers are abroad uh, before they are getting in contact with uh, civilians that are not controlled by the army, it might be better to establish army or navy brothels where the prostitutes are tested regularly. And then the soldiers get access to a controlled environment of sex. It is quite interesting that uh, not only the Japanese tried to solve this problem during the Second World War, but also the um, SS tried to do that in uh, German towns where they had um, troops stationed And uh, the SS was arguing that uh, the high number of troops makes it uh, likely that a lot of venereal disease is spreading. So we want to establish an SS brothel that is led by a professional um, pimp, if you want to use that word. And then the SS controls how often the soldiers have sex. The Japanese tried the same. They tried uh, after Nanjing to, yeah, in a way, deflect or re, um, redirect the sexual violence and the potential for it to a more ordered system of uh, brothels, although there are different brothels uh, or different comfort stations, as they were called. We have wild comfort stations behind the front line that are organized by the army itself or the soldiers themselves where they kidnap some girls and then they uh, systematically rape them as long as uh, those individuals stand the sexual abuse. And then we have official brothels that are more ordered in the sense that uh, you get an access uh, to it such and such times per month. Uh, There are specific sections for officers and so on. So the answer of the Japanese army leadership is we have a system already that uh, is supposed to offer the soldier some kind of sexual release, I would say in quotation marks here and uh, they institutionalized that as a consequence of the rape of Nanjing because they also realized that such an eruption of violence will leave witnesses, it will leave questions, and it will leave uh, no positive publicity at all for the Japanese army that was usually considered to be very ordered, very Western, Uh, very gallant in other wars, not so much in the Second World War, but in other wars before. And therefore, we just have to understand that as an attempt to reply to the problems the Japanese army leadership had identified as a consequence of uh, the rape of Nanjing.
0: So where where are the women recruited from and and why from there? and, And how are they recruited?
1: There are different ways of recruitment. The Japanese government after the Second World War would always say, or in all, almost all cases, there were voluntaries that had been recruited partly in Japan, um, especially for the officers. Uh, Japanese prostitutes were recruited. Uh, there are cases, but not all of them were voluntaries from Japan, most uh, Uh, a large number of the so-called comfort women and comfort girls, because a lot of them were girls. They were 12 years old, 13 years old, were brought to um, the front lines from Korea. There is a number from China. We have um, comfort girls and comfort women on the Philippines. So all territories the Japanese had occupied um, there was a local um, abuseful recruitment. I would not use the word recruitment, but I'm not finding anything else that uh, is nuanceful enough. So they would uh, kidnap. That's probably better. They would kidnap local people, put them in the comfort zone, or so comfort stations like um, Maria Rosa Henson on the Philippines, Um, a comfort girl that published her experiences, I think in the early 1990s, if I remember correct, and that for the first time talked about that. So there were these local forms of, quotation mark, recruitment where they just kidnapped uh, young girls, put them into one of those wild comfort stations, and then raped them until they were either deaf, could escape, or... Uh, committed suicide, something that we also see very often. And then we have Korea as a special case because in Korea, the young women are more recruited in a sense that there is cooperation or collaboration with uh, Korean criminals as well who argue um, or who offer a position in Japan to work to young women that are um, very often from poor families and see that offer as a chance to get away. And then they are sacked and brought to a Japanese comfort station. So we have a lot of descriptions how that worked. And um, Kim Hak-sun is probably the most well-known Korean comfort woman or comfort girl that uh, opened the discussion with her testimony. But uh, I recently... Oh, not me, but I edit a series that is called uh, Genocide and Mass Violence in the Age of Extremes, where the titles are open access for download. And we just uh, published a translation of reports of Korean comfort girls and women who described that recruitment process, who also described that they wanted to get away from home, that they thought this recruitment process is a chance. They never assumed that they would work as forced military sex slaves or prostitutes in that sense, because they thought they would get a better job in Japan, they would get some education, and they would get a future. So they were, in a way, tricked into such agreements And uh, therefore, a lot of people were just sacked and brought to the front where they then had to serve as prostitutes. And there are a lot of girls. Um, Margaret Stetz, who is professor at the University of Delaware for Women and Gender Studies, um, also wrote uh, multiple works on comfort girls um, where she could show that it was also a strategy to um, use were abused, those young girls, because uh, they could serve the Japanese army without a break during the whole month. So um, without menstruation, they were ready to go all the time uh, to speak in very trivial and cruel words. But uh, this is an aspect that is particularly important. They were not just uh, women uh, that had reached an age where they were able to be called women. Now, here children were systematically, and particularly girls were systematically abused by the Japanese military. And that is something I still don't understand why it is impossible to acknowledge that. Um, it is not that uh, the Japanese who live today are responsible for the crime although the guilt itself might be uh, Japanese as such. But uh, if you don't acknowledge that, you hurt the few victims that are still alive uh, for a second time, and you hurt uh, Korea as a nation, because this victimization by Japan is an essential part of the Korean national history, and therefore it has to be acknowledged by the former perpetrator as well. Mm.
0: Um so, so so let's do the third case study I wanted to talk about because, mm-hmm. because the rape of Nanjing is, is perhaps an example of, of battlefield atrocities. The, the use of comfort, women and girls is, is kind of institutionalization of abusive civilians. Um, the, the case of uh, experimentation uh, with uh, biological warfare and disease is maybe something different. It's, it's about exploiting science in a lab. Um, and doing so in a way that violates basic ideas of human rights. So can you talk a little bit, uh, probably most people, if they're familiar with this, are familiar with this um, in terms of Unit 731, but as you point out, that's not the only unit. So, so maybe you can describe a little bit about the kinds of research that, that these units are doing, and, and in particular, the kind of people who are conducting this research.
1: Yeah, that's uh, an important chapter that shows that different individuals in different settings do become extremely violent or um, totally immoral in a sense. So here we have scientists, uh, and that also shows that uh, not only um, uneducated, people have a privilege for violence. Even people with doctoral degrees, professors at universities, can be cruel and can be extremely violent. So it's not just the uh, level of education that makes us peaceful, which is very often an argument. Um, But uh, here we have people who realize their chance to do research they would not be able to do in a similar way in peacetime. Because in peacetime, there would be much more control. There would be no access to human uh, people as guinea pigs for the labs. And here we have a situation where people who are, in a way, uh, very much career-oriented, in a sense that they want to achieve something that makes them famous. Yeah? In German, we would use the term kayerist, somebody who lives for the career. They are um, involved in that unit and they use all the chances they have to uh, find new insights into... Uh, medical questions or new answers to medical questions and of course they say that is important for the army because we test uh, biological warfare and uh, not only that there was, were also tests on frostbite for example where they would uh, um, document what kind of method would be the best to um, apply if somebody had problems with frostbite um, it was argued that there was a preparation for a future war against the Soviet Union um, in more uh, or in colder territories and then we have um, different tests with um, biological weapons or biological um, material not bio, with biological diseases that could be spread and uh, then in China there were multiple um, yeah, activities where there were not only individuals abused to test that, but where they also tried to see how specific diseases could be used or abused in a warfare scenario. So what we have here in contrast to the ordinary soldier or the army leadership that institutionalizes uh, sexual violence, we have a group of people that just want to find results no matter the cost. So they would just inject something and see what happens. And uh, they wouldn't do that because they wanted to find uh, a cure or an answer how to better treat people. No, they wanted to be efficient. They wanted to find something that would show that they can kill more people in less time, if we compare that. Uh, there is uh, this company in Germany that produces ovens for the Nazis and at one point they produce better ovens for more uh, people to burn. And so you see there is this kind of knowledge that is institutionalized for something evil and only because those people want to, in a way, yeah, become unforgettable, which eventually happens, but not in the way, they imagined that and the problem particularly with the results of those studies is that they were known after the war because they had clearly documented that but they were sacked Um, so the report books were mostly going to washington to be studied the cold war was already awaiting uh, around the corner so They were technically needing the results without sharing them with the Soviet Union. And therefore, a lot of those perpetrators, and that is uh, extremely heartbreaking in a way, were just going on returning to their status as ordinary men. They worked for pharmaceutical companies in Japan. They worked for universities in Japan. So they had prominent positions in post-war society, regardless of the fact that their publications of the past documented that they had uh, worked with human beings in their studies and uh, killed many of them. And uh, there were some publications during the war where they described what they had done uh, and were referring to apes as the animals that were used during the trials. But uh, it showed clearly that they were guilty. So everybody who wanted to know that or who wanted to understand that would have easy access to the information, yet still those perpetrators were yeah, valuable members of the post-war society, esteemed members of the post-war society, uh, something unthinkable. And it is particularly that, this looking towards the other way, while there is obviously something bad at hand that uh, is so often criticized when people talk about uh, Japan's responsibilities uh, with regard to those war crimes.
0: No, actually, I was that—that's where I was going to get next, and and we don't have a lot of time to talk about this. But you do make a point in the book about the the dynamics of Japanese politics and society, and why that has kept this this broad topic of Japanese violence during the war has has for much of Japanese post-war history kept it. Out of sight, and for some of it, it's been very controversial. So, so maybe you can give us an update. In, in 2020, what, to what degree do, do um, historians, teachers, other figures in Japan, to what degree is, is there any kind of consensus about Japanese behavior during the war?
1: There is a lot of international attention as a consequence of the redress movement um, in which not only Koreans are involved, but also uh, Japanese scholars, Japanese activists. So there are Japanese that demand um, a different approach to that. On the other hand, we have a very nationalist Japanese political leadership at the moment. Um, that is not so much interested in showing some form of weakness, as it would be perceived, but rather focus on the national strength of Japan. There are also extreme right-wing voices that demand uh, a Japanese army to exist again, um, which had not been the case. There are only the self-defense forces, the GA tie, that is limited in number and limited in equipment and limited in weaponry because there is a close tie to the United States. And there is also an article in the Constitution of Japan, post-war constitution, that uh, does not allow the state to have an active army, which is very good. But there are forces in Japan that now want to focus on uh, national strength, rearmament. Uh, the argument is usually uh, the threat from China. And uh, this, however, does not explain that the memorization of um, so many victims is very often not taken seriously, especially when the Japanese prime minister is visiting the Yasukuni Shrine in Tokyo in, uh, usually in August. There is a lot of riots. Uh, there are a lot of riots in China and Korea as a consequence. That is something uh, they know, but they still do it. And this is something I don't understand. And but we have to be careful. This is not the majority of the Japanese people. Very often. Um, the there is a lack of education about those topics. Uh, when I talk to Japanese uh, exchange students, sometimes when we talk about Japanese history and you talk about Nanjing or you talk about uh, Unit 731, uh, they have heard about it, but they were never actually educated about it. So there is no central museum for the war crimes of the Japanese army that can be visited because it's not on the state agenda. And as long as the state does not accept the guilt, uh, which is not the current Japanese generation, but it is their legacy to remember that bad things happened. Uh, And uh, of course, with regard to Japanese commemoration, there is a focus on the atomic bombs and uh, some form of victimization, which at the same time, is something to remember. I'm not saying skip the commemoration of Hiroshima or Nagasaki, but a commemoration of the things that eventually led, in a way, historically speaking, to the end, this end of the Second World War would also be appropriate. So there need to be more publications by historians. There are some colleagues that are steadily active to do that. Um, But the first publications about that complex were journalists. So there was no real historic interest by the field of historical studies. And this has to be intensified. There has to be... Money from the government for research projects to really address guilt, but then again, Mm -hmm. it's Japan, and uh, people don't like to talk about bad things that happened in the past. So, uh, what is important at that point is uh, the pressure is important from the international community, although this pressure is never really taken serious by uh, the Japan the Japanese people as a whole, right? Because very often the reports are not even uh, displayed publicly. So what has to be done is some kind of, um, yeah, the, the representatives and the former victims have to meet the representatives and the former perpetrators. And then it has to be agreed upon this past and together together the two groups can heal. They can try to engage in studies about the past, uh, remembering that uh, preventing further generations from doing the same mistakes. And it also, the studies would be important from a psychological perspective because they have the value to show if A, B, C, and D exist in a specific moment of time, it will lead to an enormous um, eruption of violence. And if we can learn things beyond um, the fact that uh, victims need to heal with the perpetrators together, or those whose parents or grandparents were perpetrators, that's an important process, uh, psychological process. a process that was already um, emphasized by Hannah Arendt, the famous German-American philosopher, Um, who said, this is something that can only be done together. But as long as the Japanese deny this togetherness with regard to the acceptance of something horrible in the past, there will be no healing at all. And that makes it so tragic in a way, because momentarily it looks like we have a lot of knowledge, although it... It's only popping up from time to time in waves, I have the feeling. Um, There are a lot of people who work on that topic and who try to explain a lot, who try to emphasize this is what happened. And then you have uh, only the wall of silence uh, and a few Japanese behind that wall who want to break it as well. And as long as this situation doesn't change there is not much chance for a better future for all former parties involved
0: so as you talked about at the beginning this is in some sense uh while it is while japanese studies is a passion of yours this is also meant to be a case study for the broader question of of how this kind of violence happens Um, so so where do you see this book in the broader continuum of studies about mass violence? Is this a, a new direction? Is this further adding to or, or contributing to a broad um, theme that has already emerged? How, what, how does this fit in genocide studies?
1: I think it's uh, just the attempt to identify a few f- factors that are important To understand why such forms of genocidal violence appear again and again and again. On the next step, it would be suitable to compare that. So you take two or three cases, you look at uh, that specific space time continuum and the factors that are, uh, or that could be applied here, or that could be identified here. And then you compare that and then you will almost have like a setting as a rule. If A, B and C exist at the same time, it is quite likely that we see the development of some form of genocidal violence. So while it is a case study, it is also attempting to give some kind of a theoretical direction for the aspects we have to discuss. Uh, Imprisonment during war. Why does it cause violence? Who are the actors, who are the perpetrators, who are the victims? What are the circumstances? In which cases do we have an exaggeration of violence? Is it only ideological? Um, Are there specific factors that exist in this moment at this specific spot that play an important role? So what are the forces that eventually make the violence break through? Uh, Because there is violence all the time. And uh, uh, human beings, as uh, neurological and biological studies have shown, are violent as such. So we have the possibility to suppress this violence. But in some situations, we obviously are not very successful with it. And that is what we have to find out. What are those situations? And then we have group dynamics, we have um, a specific order that might either be state-related or army-related, we have an image of the victim, we have moral values, we have historical traditions, it's much easier to be violent against somebody you consider historically opposing or historically being an enemy of your own nation or whatever your national identity might be. So um, this identity can also be changed because sometimes we have genocidal violence against people of your own nation state. And then there is an identity that is constructed that can be religious, that can be uh, political, that can be gender. So I hope to have given some yeah, sparkles as well that will intensify research on those questions in different national or regional contexts that can then be compared. So which role does ideology play for violence in the Japanese army, in the American army, and maybe in the German army, or something like that. Uh, Very often, those large questions can only be answered appropriately by a comparative perspective. Because then you see them in different contexts and then you can also solve the factor that eventually triggers the violence from this national context. So it doesn't help to say, oh, the Germans were more violent than the Japanese and the Japanese are uh, genuinely more violent than the Chinese. That, that's nonsense. So we cannot explain that with a specific national identity. Although historical tradition plays a role, but uh, when we switched to Europe with regard to anti-Semitism, the Germans were not the only anti-Semites in Europe uh, during the long 19th and early 20th century. Yet the Germans were responsible for the Holocaust. So that alone is not sufficient to explain that. So there is obviously more than one factor that needs to be taken into consideration. And the more of those factors we can clearly identify the better we can prepare for future war scenarios that will probably happen, but they, uh, the better we train the soldiers with regard to such um, a potential for violent outbreaks, the better they can react uh, knowing what's going on. And I think that is very important with regard to the practical perspective. So not only to think that theoretically through and then eventually we can do that. There has to be a practical value of that research. And even if it's only uh, possible to avoid such an outbreak once it has done its job, I would say. Well,
0: it's a fascinating book. um, And I I learned a lot from it. uh, And I, I appreciate you coming on the show to talk about it. I always ask the same two questions at the end of the interview. Uh, The first being, uh, I wonder if you could recommend a book or two or a movie or something that was important to you as you thought about these issues. Um, School has started here. We're taping in late August. Uh, But I don't yet have a huge pile of grading to do. So before that starts, what should I read or watch this weekend? Mm,
1: I think a really important book is uh, Maria Rosa Hansen's memoir, uh, Comfort Woman, where she describes her own story. It is uh, a book that makes you cry, I'm pretty sure, uh, because I cried a lot when I read that. And uh, there are those books you have to put aside because you cannot take it anymore. But at the same time, you want to know how it continues. You want to... Uh, see the the escape in the end, because, you know, she, she wrote the book later. So there must be an escape. And um, yeah, it's it's a book that is very thrilling and intriguing in the sense that there is something described, which is a historical fact in the sense it existed. It is not fiction. And therefore it is... So heartbreaking and shocking at the same time that you will never forget that uh, human beings are able to be evil. And uh, once read that, once you have read this book, it's also something that makes you want to uh, that makes you want people to remember what happened. And uh, I use that as a, a parts of it in. A class at CUNY I taught at uh, Queensborough Community College, so also students uh, that had not the best educational background, let's put it euphemistically. And they always had problems to engage with texts. And then I gave them a trigger warning and said, we're reading parts of a text, and then we will discuss it. And this text stimulated for the first time something like... uh, historical awareness and the the understanding that our past is so violent. So I can really recommend that. It's also good for undergraduate courses um, to really uh, get people involved and realize this is not just a history lecture. It's something important you simply have to know about and, uh, Yeah, very often it's just a start for a next generation of readers and probably scholars who deal with that. And as long as we can keep that alive, uh, there might be hope that we eventually are also able to stimulate some healing uh, on behalf of the victims and uh, also the acknowledgement of the perpetrators or those who represent them.
0: And the second question I know you've got an active research agenda. What are you working on now?
1: Now I'm working on two main projects. Uh, one is a comparative theoretical approach for revolutions. And one is a continuation of uh, the book we are just discussing now. I work on the self-perception of Japanese perpetrators. That means I'm reading a lot of the legal documents related to the war crime trials after the war, and I'm looking uh, for the Japanese perspective. So what do the perpetrators say about these crimes? And very often uh, it's like, oh, we weren't responsible for that. Uh, There was this and this reason and uh, this and this superior um, level of the army is responsible. So there is no sense of guilt visible in those documents as far as I'm aware so far. So I'm wondering why uh, did they not even accept what they had done before and what strategies they used to uh, camouflage their own crimes or to um, point into a different direction with regard to the guilt. So that's a very interesting project, but it's... uh, It will take a while before I can finish that book because at the moment you cannot travel a lot. (laughs) um, But it's uh, an interesting question because we have, and then similar for uh, German perpetrators, um, we see quite some difference because the German perpetrators would say, oh, I know that I committed a crime, but I did it for that and that reason. And then also try to flatten the guilt in a way. But the Japanese, in contrast, as far as I've read so far, do not go that step. So they simply blend out the fact or blind out the fact that they did something wrong. And uh, I'm trying to find some answers why that is the case. And uh, I hope that I also find some Stuff uh, with regard to cultural theory and uh, Japanese sociology that will help me to understand that phenomenon a little bit better. So maybe in two years or so, we could talk again.
0: I would love to do that. It sounds like a great project, and I'd love to have you back on the show. Uh, We've been talking with Frank Jacob uh, about his new book, uh, a recent book, Japanese War Crimes During World War II, Atrocity and the Psychology of Collective Violence, Uh, and uh, I hope you'll join us next time when we will be talking with Donald and Lorna Miller about their work, Becoming Human Again, an oral history of the Rwanda genocide against the Tutsis. Uh, But until then, Frank, thanks so much for your time. This was wonderful. Uh, I urge everybody to go out and read the book, and uh, Frank, I hope you have a safe and productive fall, and that you'll come back on the show sometime.
1: Thank you very much. I would be happy to be back.